program, or we like to call it Put on a Stack of 45s. Your hosts, well, we like to call ourselves the Splendid Bohemians. And uh, one gentleman is named Mr. Bill Mesnick. He's That's in, me. He's on the coast, and that is the voice of the Mez, a.k.a. Gwim Mesnikov. That's a story. Mm-hmm. That That's an episode for another day. This is Rich Buckland in Florida, and... Put on a stack of 45s. On occasion, what we do is um, the, the show's normal format is taking a 45 RPM. Generally, it'll be out of the 50s, 60s, 70s. But most of the time, uh, we veer away from uh, vinyl that was still being pressed in the 80s. Well, we're going back to that uh, format for this particular program, as we did when we did the program on Tom Petty's Rebels, which I think was a very important program and a very important record. That was released in 1985. They were still pressing vinyl, and Tower Records had thousands and thousands of them. By 89, they were still pressing them, and the Billboard Top 100 was still keeping count of how many were being sold. Yes, and the record that we are featuring today is... No Myth by Michael Penn. And this, Michael Penn. This is one of my favorite young singer-songwriters of the 80s. Um, I will say that when I was doing my research, uh, everybody, yes, 1989, RCA uh, put this record out. It made it to number 13, so it, it, it got some traction. Um, but I couldn't find a B-side listed. So... We know that it was released, it was from the album entitled March. Yes. But um, it was released, I don't know what the B-side was. It's his only top 20 record uh, in a career that has now spanned, uh, wow, you know. Yeah, he's done a lot of soundtrack stuff. Well, so is his wife, but she's been yeah. more successful at it than he and his wife is Amy Mann, and that's a story unto itself. The wonderful Amy Mann. Um, she has been incapacitated as of recent years due to uh, um, depression and nervous disorders. You look Singer-songwriter Amy Mann won a Grammy in 2018 for a deeply personal album called Mental Illness. Following that release, she was asked to write songs for a stage adaptation of the best-selling memoir Girl Interrupted, the story of a young woman in 1968 aspiring to be a writer who was committed to a mental hospital. I certainly know people who are bipolar, who have eating disorders, who were severely traumatized, who do a lot of self-harm, I, you know, I mean, uh, drug addiction, like I have been fairly close with one from each of those categories. But she and Michael married and had a very successful collaboration, particularly with a song that first came to my attention. Uh, from the motion picture 
Hard Eight, originally titled Sydney, mm-hmm. which was an expansion of a short film called Coffee and Cigarettes by Paul Thomas Anderson. At the very end of this film, over the credits, a song is played called Christmas Time. I think it's a beautiful Beatles-inspired song that the both of them perform and had written. And and he also worked on Boogie Nights, which is one of the all-time great soundtracks. Yes, but his wife Amy, she did the and soundtrack. she did Magnolia. Magnolias, for which she won, uh, for which she won awards. So a long and fruitful association with Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes, and um, I think that's the glue that basically allowed them to uh, access their popularity to a, to, a, to a place that they couldn't have otherwise. Um, so the, the story is really very, very simple because everybody and his mother wants to be a singer-songwriter, and it's, it's hard. It's really hard. And this kid gets a break. Uh, and it's not through his uh, it's not through his association with his brother Sean, his ma- his his monumentally successful brother Sean, and his yeah. other monumentally successful brother Chris, and his monumentally Chris, successful the late great Chris, fa- father, and the father Leo, the great director. Leo. So you know, I got to ask you: there, so many in your family were uh, you know were in the film side of the business. How did you become the music guy? Um. Probably a black sheep streak that I have, and I didn't want to go into the family business. And also, I think I think when you're I was just talking about this, when you when you're raised by narcissists, you somehow recoil <laughs> from that, and you just want to hide. And uh, so, um, music is a nice place to express yourself and hide at the same time. So this is all done. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure, and he's the sole musical. Uh, and he's the older brother. And he's the right. older brother, right. And in 1990, he won the MTV um, Video Award for Best New Artist. So uh, he was, you know, he was, on, he was on a trajectory. Something happened. So I sent uh, you that video. Fox's Gary Leboff says he's pig-headedly uncommercial. I sent you that video for a reason because it was one of my favorite videos in rotation of the time, at that particular time. What was your response to that? To, okay, to, to I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna tell you. Um, first of all, I like the song. Um, and, and the lyrics, you know, I, I were intriguing, and I wanted to know more. And I love, I love the, um, the melody and all that. But what really... What, fascinated me the most was the instrument played by his partner Patrick Warren Uh, I'm thinking what the hell is this it's a box and it's got keys on it and and so I had to know so I did some research on the Chamberlain a vintage electro mechanical keyboard which was the precursor to a Mellotron and as you listen to that record the keyboard is providing the orchestral bed of the sound, which is quite haunting. Uh, this was the Chamberlain. You, did you know about the Chamberlain? Yes. You did. Okay. Bobby Darren owned one. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Elvis had one of the early uh, prototypes. Um, Tom Rundgren used it on when he produced XTC's Skylarking, which I love. Bowie used it on Low. Joe South and Chip Taylor, Tom Waits, and uh, a longtime associate, John Bryan, who also does soundtracks, I Heart Huckabee and, and others. Um, but so that was my first kind of fascination with the video. Um, and then, like I say, I like the song. But you don't. But you don't find it to be a a superior piece of that from that period. Well, I see why you love it because you are a romantic. You're a, a, an incurable deep romantic, and this song is very romantic. He says in the lyrics, you know, um, he doesn't understand why this woman uh, will not engage in the depth of romance that he wants. And he just, he's, it's a song of confusion. But it's the sound that trapped me. It's not the lyricism. The sound? The Chamberlain? It was the sound of the production. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful production. The overall production of this recording that captured me at first. I did not understand the lyrics, and there was no internet at the time other than the first versions of America Online, and very few lyrics were available to find. So you had to really do some research to find out the lyrics. I didn't well, know... Well, in that chorus, he's saying, what if I was, um, you know... Um, what if I was Romeo and Blue Romeo Jeans? Romeo and Black I were... Jeans, right? Maybe she just wants someone to dance with. Yes. I mean, that's quite the... Un- that's understandable but there's yeah the that, other, that that makes sense the other lyrics um no by that i'm talking about you know how you heard things when they were played on the radio when we were younger even yes. 89 you misinterpret lyrics you don't hear them the way they were actually recorded or you can't hear them well enough to understand the it's actual true lyrics. it's true That's and all through my education the early days with Shakespeare and and all of the poetry that I've attempted to read. If I don't understand something, I I don't stress. I just let it flow through me and take what impressions I can. Well, there are so many records, even from the 60s, that I have re-listened to. And my wife would point out to me, I thought he or she was saying this when they were actually saying that. Yes. And so for, you know, half a century, uh, I've uh, songs you think you know inside and out, you don't really know. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of one where I, uh, I never knew what they were saying, but I thought I did. Well, Purple Haze is given credit for, as being one of those songs, and there's actually a name for this Syndrome. Uh, this syndrome, where you don't hear things correctly. Excuse uh, me while I kiss this guy. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. There's a whole list of them on the internet that you can look up. But I, I, I feel shameful at the moment that I don't remember the name of this uh, particular syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. But uh, yes, I did not 
really know the the complete lyrics to the song for another 20 years. So Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was the production that captivated. Because I love a great pop record and that's a great pop record and as you can hear in Amy Mann's work there's an understanding of the pop uh of the nature of pop which is why the Beatles are infused in there. The song Christmas Time is from a Christmas album compilation called Just Say Noel, which also mm. features Sonic Youth, The Roots, uh, and Beck. And you hear the transformation of these different types of Christmas songs uh, turned into pop. Recordings. Yes, I used to like a good Christmas album. Yeah, but particularly when they're done well and poppy. As yeah. I have some on a track, maybe I'll uh, dig one out for Captain Billy when Christmas comes around. But Michael Penn has done scores for the anniversary party. Alan Cummings' uh, first directorial yeah. effort, Suffering Man's Charity, the documentary "The Comedians of Comedy." And in 2003, he was nominated for, and here, here's, here's one they used to give an award for anything, the DVD-X Award for Best Original Score in a DVD Premiere Movie. Oh, wow. Well, he was also done a lot of TV. He did the show Girls, Masters of Sex, Good Girls, Here and Now. So he's quite busy in the, the world of television and film scoring. And in 2005, there was an album called Mr. Hollywood Jr. on his own mimeograph uh, label. And the songs are all about post-World War II Los Angeles. Welcome, Michael Penn. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. 1947, series of interconnected events. Why the fascination with that year? Uh, I've been really interested in that whole period of history in America, sort of from the end of World War II to the beginning of the Cold War. It's just, to me, it's just a really interesting period. And that year in particular is just a watershed year. Just so many things happened that, to me, it's sort of like the, it, it's, the, it's the beginning of the era that we're now living in. Give me some examples of things that happened in 1947, especially, you know, because a lot of our audience, they weren't born back then. Yes, yeah, that was the year that the National Security Act was passed, which meant it was the year that the CIA was formed. It was the beginning of the military-industrial establishment. It was the, the year that the UN partitioned Palestine. It was the year that the transistor was invented. It was the year that television finally was sort of reached the west coast of America. Uh, it's the year that the sound barrier was broken. I mean, it's just the transistor was invented. It's just all, all, all kinds of stuff happened that year that, that really sort of set up, for me, sort of where we are now. I don't, if this is a recording that has eluded you, I, I highly recommend it. Um, yeah, I never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, well, this is where Michael falls into that level of obscurity. And I thought that this recording was important enough in uh, impacting me visually as well as uh, uh, audio-wise, but the, you, you still really didn't answer the question of what you thought of the video itself. You have to remember in those days, if, did you watch MTV a lot? Not really. Not really. Uh, I saw some of the classics. 
So if a song was not a top 100 song, probably did might have missed it. You could have you missed know, it. You know, I mean, MTV was off and on in the background. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I wouldn't sit and watch it intently. It would, it would be like, uh, you know, a radio, but with pictures. Um, but uh, no, I don't think I ever saw that. If I did, I didn't remember seeing it. You know, it, the video was a little annoying, as many of those. Uh, I was waiting. Oh, f- I was waiting for you to go there. Overly produced. Uh, you know, uh, this is where the filmmaker, you know, has ambitions, and he's, you know, or she is <clears throat> larding a lot of stuff onto so you know with that whatever that subplot was about the older people in the kitchen uh you know you tell me and then the end it snows uh in the uh, in the room because uh, because why where's the snow coming from tell me she is okay you, I, I, I've got. I, I don't, I'm not going to deconstruct this for you or for the audience because the majority of the audience hasn't seen it, and you saw it in an entirely different manner. You didn't quite grasp the different stories that were being. The no, la- I didn't. The layers. I have to admit, I yes, did not. You didn't grasp the layers of. And partially, the lives, that was my refusal to try. Lives that are lived in apartment buildings especially in New York, Los Angeles, you have different... I, in the in the building I lived in in the Bronx, I had an 80-year-old man on top of me. I had a 24-year-old young artist below me. I had an FBI agent to the side of me. And there were always little stories that you would hear about what would be going on within the apartment building. And... The stories that are told, particularly the older gentleman and the older woman, I found very ambitious for that that format. And the young girl who somehow inherits a great deal of money but couldn't care about it as if it were salt. The salt is the snow. She's... She's got a salt shaker. Oh, okay. And she's right. shaking it down, and it turns into snow in Michael Penn's apartment, which is two stories, two stories gotcha. below. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, So to me, it made a lot of sense. But then again, I have an abstract mind. I thought that if you say so, I thought that there was a great philosophical ambition in the Andy Warhol films. I thought that. Films and like, yet you did not, you, you just claimed that you did not understand the lyrics. Well, because I couldn't hear them. But when you saw the video, then it all made sense to you. The video told me a different story than the totally lyrics different story. needed yes. to tell me. We agree there. If I saw Tom Waits' video for um, Downtown Train and didn't understand the song, it still would not be a deficit because of the beauty of that video. The story... We're talking about the 45. Yeah. And the song. Sure. Right? So the video is a 
is a red herring. Yeah, but it's how records were still being sold during that period of time. During that period. And that's that's another conversation in terms of uh, why we usually do not go to the 80s with this particular program. I think some of the videos that were made are important uh, contributions to where popular music has gone and how it's grown. Um, I think a lot of ideas, a lot of young filmmakers were given opportunities. Uh, it was a it was a great idea that submerged itself in the commercial culture that kills everything. Yeah, no, no, this is all true, and you, you, I, I, you, you've got a friend in me. But, but no, no myth. The but, first time I heard no myth was not on the radio; it was on MTV. So I had the uh, visual to go along with it. So, okay, it, let okay. us let us finalize the conversation by simply stating that we had, we had entered an age where the theater of our imagination was overtaken by the television once again as it had been from the time we were born. We're born, we're placed in front of the television as a babysitter. We see all these images. We are harnessed to it until death. And then popular music, my favorite retreat, becomes submerged in this MTV culture. And I am, of course, very interested in how it's being done. So, it was another age of understanding how you understood and heard music and the images that came along with it. It also, in this particular case, presented the issue of lyricism being as important as it should be, not necessarily being as important when you have a visual to accompany it. It's like, how many times have you sat in a movie and you look, to, you turn to the person you're with, and what'd she say? You can't mm-hmm. rewind. Yeah. You're left with whatever connection you make. Yes. Sometimes that happens in, in popular music. Um, yeah, and it's, 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 it's not a bad thing. Um, going back to Vox's, Vox, your place, Gary Leboff, he says, um, Michael Penn's free-form songwriting creates tracks of startling shape and originality, offering literate reflections on the human condition. Yeah, I think he's a great writer, and I think he's an underrated writer. I think this particular song, as a pop song, is one of the best of the 80s as we enter another phase into the 90s. That's the reason for it being my selection, but I think he's done other work, which is certainly grander, which is certainly more astute, uh, and which is certainly, uh, which, which is probably more uh, deserving of attention. But the heart wants what the heart wants. This song has stayed in my head from the moment I heard it in 1989, and it has remained there. And yeah, uh, and I, I had never heard it before, and uh, I immediately ended up playing it on rotation. I heard it five times in a row and each time uh, liked it better and better. So what I would like to do with your permission as I would like to make this a bit of a double header 
because of the import of his relationship with Amy Mann and the import of his relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson, let us play Christmas Time, which I think is probably the best record that he was affiliated with. Let's play that in its entirety. With no myth. With no myth. So right now we're going to give you the big picture, the really big show. It's called No Myth. If you haven't seen the video, go to YouTube. It's an interesting, it's a, for me, it's a very interesting video. I'm going to see it again now that you've explained it to me. Listen to, listen to this guy and listen to this production. Michael Penn from 1989, number 13 on Billboard's Hot 100, No Myth.
So it's, a, it's, it's just one of those things that stays with you, and it stays in your mind. The parts of everything that I did understand stayed in my heart, particularly the chorus. You know, when you... Uh, the bridge is a little hard to understand because he makes a reference to Fred Astaire dancing on the sea. Yes. And, uh, yes, and, and that's, that's, a, that's, that's beautiful poetry. Yeah, um, on, online there are several bloggers that um, break down the lyrics for you. Yeah, that's interesting. In this day and age, if you are interested in any lyric, you will have someone who will break it down and interpret it for you, but quite often they're interpreting it from their personal point of view. Andrea, from a blog from 2006, writes, it's a really terrific song about dealing with rejection with hope and humor. I think that's a very nice assessment. A very, yeah, I, I, that's yeah, why I wrote it down. Very short and sweet assessment. Absolutely, absolutely. So with Christmas only a few months away, <laughs> Amy Mann, in tribute to Amy Mann, who, who really deserves credit and, uh, and uh, a story uh, of her own, uh, Amy Mann and Michael Penn from the motion picture Hard Eight, starring someone you have worked with, the great Philip Baker Hall. Great man. John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow in what, for me, is the best work she ever did, and four and a half or so minutes of the one of the most brilliant actors of my generation, Philip Seymour Hoffman. The song is called Christmas Time. Just a bit less so 
Coming up, we have an interesting one because we go out of the box sometimes, as you well know. You know, you never know when you tune in here what you're going to get. You might get some rage. You might get some tears. You might get some uh, hummingbirds. But we, uh, Bill suggested something that I thought was brilliant. And uh, at first, could not find any recording of it. Uh, Bill has an 8-track of the score, the Alex North score for the motion picture, one of my favorite films of all time, literally, The Misfits. The Misfits with Marilyn Monroe, Montgomery, Cliff Marlon Brando, Thelma... uh, uh, Not Marlon Brando, Clark Gable. Clark Gable, Eli Wallach, God Almighty. This film is just... And of course his love letter and hate letter to Marilyn, written by Arthur Miller. So we've got the entire 50-minute score, and that will be up uh, very, very shortly. Ladies and gentlemen, life is a beautiful thing. Every time I pull the string, I'd be a silly so-and-so if I'd ever let it go. I will never let go of my friend Bill Mesnick. We are the Splendid Bohemians, and we will never let go of you. Beautiful. That's it. Love you, baby. Good night. Bye-bye.